Good morning. <clears throat> Some of my favorite songs this morning. That's why my voice sounds like it does. You just got to sing out, you know, but then it leaves you kind of hoarse. So good morning. We're going to be uh, back in the parables of Jesus this morning as we continue our series, Simple Stories, Daring Truths. And we're in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 23 through 35. A few years ago, I did a, a series of three messages. I titled them Messages That Changed My Life. This would be a message that I would add to that collection of messages that have changed my life, that, that have been defining turning points. And it really is my prayer that this would be just such a message from the Lord to each one of us this morning. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible this morning, <clears throat> and the reason is because there are a few words that I think are very important, and the New American Standard Bible brings those words out. So let's look at chapter 18, and I'll begin reading at verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. What a beautiful story. What an ugly story. What 
a sobering story. It's all three. It starts off beautiful, and then it turns ugly, and then it gets shockingly sobering. The first part is very beautiful. A debt that a servant cannot repay is so large, even though he forfeits all he has, his life, that of his wife, that of his children, and all he possesses, the debt will not be repaid. The servant's creditor is the king himself, and he moved to compassion. It says he felt he had compassion, and he released him, and he forgave him. He canceled the debt. That's astounding. That's the stuff of movies. That's happy endings. That is beautiful, and it should touch us deeply. Why did he do that? What trumped justice? The answer in verse 27, the king felt compassion. It's beautiful because the king not only gives him his life, his family, and everything back, but also his future, his status before the king. In short, the king has fully restored the servant. Compassion has trumped justice. It's called mercy. The second part is is really ugly, very ugly. The servant turns right around. I imagine him leaving this audience with the king. He steps back out into the hall. He runs into another servant. He meets a servant who is indebted to him. He is now the creditor. And the debtor turned creditor refuses to forgive a very small debt, a fraction of what he, as a debtor, had himself been forgiven. That's ugly. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. In fact, in verse 31, his fellow servants are deeply grieved. They felt the pain of what was happening to him. And they witnessed something painfully unjust. The third part is very sobering. The king is informed of what the servant who had been forgiven a great debt, had refused to forgive a fraction of what he'd been forgiven. And he summons him. And he comes before the king, and the king literally calls him an evil servant in verse 32. 
And he chastises him with these words. It's nece- is it not necessary for you also to show mercy to your fellow servant as I have shown mercy to you? And it's sobering that the king should jail him until he should pay his debt. And then Jesus makes the sobering point, you also. My heavenly Father will not forgive unless you forgive your brother from the heart. It's a simple story. Beautiful, ugly, shockingly sobering. with a daring truth. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. We're in this story. I'm in this story. We're supposed to identify with the debtor forgiven a great debt. We're supposed to recoil at the petty spirit of a debtor turned creditor. We're supposed to shiver at the stunning importance to God of a forgiving heart. We need to let the depiction of God's forgiveness govern our hearts. To really appreciate, and this is a, The very nature of a parable, it draws you in. You identify with a character. All of us know debt. All of us know guilt. All of us know sin. I know of things that I have never been ticketed for, punished for, even in prison for. Maybe you do too. I would hope you would. I would hope you would be honest with yourselves. That's why this parable grips my heart. Because I know who I am. I know I'm indebted. And when this servant who owes a great debt is released and given a freedom that he in no way could have earned and his debt forgiven out of the compassion of the king's heart. That's me. And I'll bet that's who you want to be too. Just for a moment, let's try to get our heads and our hearts around this. I mean, this is an enormous Debt, an enormous debt. You notice the word talent used. Well, in calculations, you know, in trade and in giving and taking, buying and selling, a talent was the largest measure. It was the equivalent, well, strictly 93.7 pounds. That's how much a talent was, 93.7 pounds. But we know things were a little loosey-goosey in the ancient world. Precision was hard to come by. But even if you just use the number of 90 pounds, well, my goodness, that's 450 tons. A talent was a weight 
of precious metal, of silver or gold. We're not told what the precious metal is, but this is an enormous amount. And the fact that the talent is the largest computation, that tells us something, doesn't it? And then the number 10,000 is used. That too, in giving, selling, trade, buying, and selling, that was the largest magnitude as well. But if we take it quite literally, man, 10,000 times 93.7, that's, wow, that's well over 450 tons. That's a huge amount. But the interesting thing is that at the time of Jesus, a talent was a, was a, had a monetary value. It was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. One talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. Now, we know from some parables we've already looked at that a day's wage was one denarius. One denarius. A talent is 6,000 denarii times 10,000. That's 200,000 years of labor paid for one man. One talent could buy a human life on the slave market. You could outfit an entire army of 10,000 or more people with 10,000 talents. This is an enormous sum. In fact, Herod the Great, his annual income is, was reported historically to have been in the neighborhood of 900 talents a year. By the way, he, in the New American Standard Bible, this figure, this man is called a slave. He's a servant. It's interesting, in the parables of Jesus, slaves or servants were often managers. They were often people that we would call of professional ability and competence. And they often are managing and handling money. I think this servant probably was a significant administrator for the king. Even so, 10,000 talents, an enormous sum. 200,000 years of wages for a man, one man at a, at a, at a denarius a day. That's incredible. But it's not just monetary calculations that are in view. It's also the math of human life. It is his wife, his children, and all that he possesses, everything he is. This is like a life sentence that he should be imprisoned or sold to recoup the funds. This is like getting a life sentence, but not just one life sentence. Every, time, every once in a while you hear about somebody who's committed something so heinous that they're given like three life sentences, and you think, isn't that overkill? This is a sum that he could never repay. Think about it this way, as we identify with this great debt that's been forgiven. What's the highest magnitude of calculation and weight in the gospel? 
It's a son. It's the beloved son of God. It's the one and only, the unique son of God that is given for us. Each and every one of us has a debt that sometimes we don't even fully appreciate. But God has used a magnitude of value that far exceeds our greatest debt. Does that mean it's preposterous to try and imagine or appreciate God's grace? The only measure we have to weigh his grace is to count or appreciate the debt that we've incurred. That can be very valuable. The Bible calls about it as repentance because it is that repentant heart, that change of heart that actually comprehends how lavish, how great is the grace, the love, the compassion of God. In fact, later the king uses the word mercy. I've used the word mercy. He cancels the debt. He shows mercy. He has compassion. These are all words for love. Grace is just love poured out on others. It's generous. It's favored, favoring others. No strings attached. Mercy is just grace in the specific situation of being a debtor. When grace is applied in that situation to a debt, it's mercy. God's grace is great, and it really is the way we can compute how much he loves us. Let the depiction of God's forgiveness govern our hearts, but let it also uh, help us to appreciate the distortion of grace. And that should grieve our hearts. It should grieve us when we see that distortion. It's depicted so powerfully in the servant who's changed from a debtor to a creditor He has been forgiven 600,000 denarii, or the equivalent of 600,000 denarii. I have never, you know, I've never won a million dollars. I've never, if somebody gave me $600,000, could you just, could you imagine that? Like having a big satchel? with 600,000 $1 bills? Could that even be put in a satchel? If I had a satchel like that, if somebody said, uh, this is for you, John, this is a satchel, it has a 600,000, I would probably sit and count every dollar. I think it would make my eyes water and tears roll down my face. I'm being just straight with you. I can't even imagine having 600,000 $1 bills. His fellow slave owes him the equivalent of one dollar. One hundred denarii against six hundred thousand denarii is the equivalent of one dollar. 
Can you imagine if somebody owed you a buck and you set your satchel down and you began to choke them and say, pay up or else? That would make me seem so small, so petty, so ugly. And that's really the picture that we see here. In fact, his fellow slaves are grieved exceedingly, it says. In other words, greatly pained. It is, it hurts to watch a man who has a satchel of $600,000 become so small-spirited and petty that he's going to throw in, he's going to bring down the entire Pillars of justice to get his one dollar back. And it's supposed to be ugly. It's supposed to repulse us. And the saddest thing about it is I see that distortion in myself. I am like that guy. You haven't seen it. But I see it inside myself. I know what my thoughts are. I know what my first reactions are. And I know what some of my behavior has been. Sometimes with my wife. Sometimes with my children. Sometimes with others. I've been forgiven a debt that I could never repay. That's given my life, my future, everything back to me. I've been restored to right relationship with the king. I bear no shame. I have no debt. And I turn right around, and I could be driving on the freeway, or I could be impatient in the line at the market, or I could read something in the paper about somebody that I disagree with, And I see, I see their wrong. I see their sin. It is so clear to me. And the more I stare at what they've done, it justifies, it vindicates, it exonerates my judgmental, my mean-spirited view of them. And I've got a hundred excuses. I can look it up in the Bible. I can see how much God hates their sin. How wrong they are. I can, I can prove it to you. Chapter and verse, I can quote it in the red letters. But you know what my greatest excuse is? The excuse that never fails me when I catch myself and I see that petty, small spirit. And yet, their sin, their wrong, I just can't let it go. I just can't give it up. They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. And I'm like a pit bull on it. And you know what my greatest excuse is? God will forgive me.
Lord, what did I just say? Oh, Lord, what did I just say? He'll forgive me. He'll have compassion. He'll release me and cancel the debt. How ugly a distortion is it that I should take that great grace, that great goodness that gives me life and merchandise it to refuse forgiveness to another. That's ugly. So no wonder Jesus is so sobering. When he demands Forgiveness for forgiveness. Because forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. The king calls him in and he calls him an evil servant. I know that philosophers, moralists, politicians, sociologists, and just people like you and me that we debate sometimes the nature of evil. Do you know today there are people who even question whether evil exists? I think it's quite telling. I don't think it's loose or sloppy language that the king calls this servant who's been forgiven a great debt, who cannot forgive, unto another, but refuses to forgive a fraction and dehumanize that person evil. It is the distortion. It is the perversion. It is the merchandising. It is the selfish taking of what God has freely given and using it in a smug, ugly fashion to make it serve my own sense of justice. And so he summons him and calls him evil. And he says, is it not necessary, necessary for you also to show mercy to your fellow servant as I have shown mercy to you. And he judges the servant on the standard that he himself has preferred. Not that of a debtor forgiven, but of a creditor with rights of justice, which cannot be ever denied because he doesn't have a heart of compassion for his fellow servant. 
You know, it's really interesting to me of the, of the stories that have changed my heart of Jesus, the prodigal son. That's one on my list. That was a life changer for me. And the father waiting, waiting, waiting. And the, he sees his son coming. And he rises from his seat. His whole countenance changes. Something floods his soul. Do you know what it is? It says it right in the text. He had compassion. The story of a man left beaten for dead. That could be me. That could be you. And Jesus identifies a traveler. And the traveler sees the same man in this sorry, broken state. The religious leaders had gone way around him, had seen him, and turned away, turned away. But this traveler that Jesus holds up to us, this traveler saw him and he had compassion. That's what the king had. Because that's what God has. It's so easy for us to see the sin, to make the excuses, and not see people as those upon whom God has compassion. And Jesus says to each one of us, is it not necessary for you to show mercy to your fellow servant with the mercy that I have shown you? That's the story. That's the life-changing truth. It's the one we can't escape. A few weeks ago, Jared Irvine, one of the guys that uh, the Lord is calling into full-time ministry, and we introduced him to all, you know, the whole church, and Jared shared something a friend, Connor Brumbaugh, Brumbaugh had told him. Connor had said the the hardest, longest journey is the, the journey from the head to the heart. That's a journey we're making. It, you can't do it all in one day. You're going you're gonna to stumble. You're going to be slow like me. You're going to leave that audience with the king and you're going to see a fellow servant that owes you a hundred denarii and you're, you're going to, and then you're going to remember the debt that you've been forgiven. And you're going to start making that journey from the head to the heart. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to have compassion. You're going to have the very compassion of Jesus, you're going to have the very compassion of God.
which is what he wants for you and me to have his heart. You stand with me? I'm going to pray for us, and uh, after I say, in Jesus' name, amen, I'll be up front, and I'll be joined by other pastors and the elders and their wives that are here. If you would like to pray with any one of us, pray with me. We invite you to come. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, your love does bring tears to our eyes. Move in us to fathom how much you love us, how much grace you've shown to us, how much mercy. And may that be all we see in the way we respond to, treat, and care for others that we might be like Jesus. In his matchless name we pray, and all of God's people said, God bless you.